Our Bible reading this morning is from John chapter 11 and we're reading the first 45 verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Egypt. To, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just, were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console him concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Thank you for that reading. This uh, is a passage which is of profound significance to anyone who names the name of the Lord. Uh, And it's a very difficult passage to do justice to, but we'll attempt to do our sort of injustice to it uh, in this next period. And I encourage you to follow along. It's a uh, very human picture, isn't it? And it's a picture that many here in recent times have experienced in our own culture, in our own place and time, uh, as uh, we've been face to face with the death of uh, ones we love. I want to just flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, because this helps explain what's happening here in John. You notice over the last few weeks we've been uh, showing a lot of uh, instances, not only where we see Jesus in his humanness, but we see Jesus in his humanness in direct opposition to the law and uh, the law of God. He has been trying to show that his authority transcends that of the authority of the Sabbath, for instance, which is the linchpin uh, indicator of the law. And in 1 Corinthians 15, famous phrase that you are well aware of, we read just a couple of verses. Verse 25, For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And at the very end of that great hymn of resurrection, Paul says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see there in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. 
And in that we have this incredible trifecta, if you like, whereas there is a relationship between death and sin, and death has been delivered into the human experience through that proboscis of sin. But the, the venom that is delivered is empowered by the law. The three go together. And so Christ has been working at defeating a particular enemy and staring down the law. And now he moves to stare down death itself. And you can see where we're heading. At the end of the book, we have Christ staring down sin itself. This is the human predicament. This is where we live. This is the paradigm model for human existence, that we live constantly falling short of the standards of God, constantly aware of our own perversity. We can't even match our own New Year's resolutions and constantly living under the shadow of death. And into that we have this story where Jesus gets some news of a friend of his, someone close to him. And uh, it's not good news. Lazarus is ill. Now, Jesus at this time is probably back in Galilee, so he's got a good day trip before he can get down into Judea again. And he gets this news, which must be news that's already at least a day old. And uh, it's the news about this fellow Lazarus. It's fascinating this guy's name actually means servant of God. He is very much uh, at God's service in this story. And in this little passage, uh, we read it's the brother of Mary. Uh, and it's fascinating that John says she's the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. It's, uh, now, we haven't got to that story. That's in the very next chapter. <laughs> And uh, it seems like maybe John is, um, you know, needs a bit of editorial work on his gospel here, but most likely it's the reader's new Mary, and there's a lot of Marys, and this is the hair Mary, right? It's, uh, that's what he's saying. This is the one. You know, there's the uh, microwave Mary, and there's the other, you know, but this is the hair Mary. So, uh, and uh, the, the sisters are sending this news. And Jesus says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. I hope you notice that. It's fascinating that he's saying, this is for the glory of God. And yet there is no rivalry or tension in this. It's that the Son of God himself might be glorified through it. This is a difficult one for those who struggle with the divinity of Christ. Because we know that... God does not brook any rivals, that our God does not share his glory. And here Jesus is saying, through this incident, I'm going to be glorified, and God's going to be glorified. No rivalry, no threat, as he confronts this power facing all people. And we know that Jesus loves Mouth Martha and her sister and Lazarus. They're close friends. It's a picture that we don't find out much about in this, this story, that Jesus had friends. He was a social animal, if you like. And for that reason, he stays for two days. 
Isn't that phenomenal? If I hear of a friend who's gravely ill, the natural inclination is to get on your bike and get over there. But Jesus has a different agenda. And it's not a caring, careless agenda. It's, it's not that he's callous in his disregard for their plight. He has a timing issue here, which will do them even more good than just being present. And so he t- stays two days longer. And then after that, he says to his disciples, okay, let's head south. Let's go to Judea. The disciples are saying, you know, are you nuts? I mean, don't you know in, in, in chapter 10, they're out to kill you. <laughs> and, and here you're about to head straight back into the fray. I mean, uh, it doesn't seem a wise move. He might be ill. But, uh, and Jesus says um, to, to these disciples, uh, aren't there 12 hours in a day? And he, he's basically making the point, he knows where he's walking. He's walking in the eye of the will of God. He's in fellowship with the light. And he knows that his hour has not come. And he's quite confident, quietly confident, that he will be quite safe to perform this ministry. Uh, and uh, the, after this he says to them plainly, Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep. The disciples think, oh my goodness, well if he's asleep, let him rest. All the more reason to stay. You know, let him sleep it off. And uh, Jesus says plainly at that point, no, Lazarus is dead. Verse 14. But for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you might believe. Now, I wonder if you've noticed, in verse 4, Jesus gave the purpose of this whole chapter. It's like telling the punchline of the joke before you get to the end. And Jesus says, this is for the glory of God the Son of God might be glorified. And in this verse, he has a subsidiary purpose. And here he's saying, this is so that, a purpose statement, so that you might believe. Now, I would have thought they already believed. I would have thought that these people wouldn't be tagging along if they didn't trust Jesus. But this is a chapter which is about the inadequacy of their belief in fact all the people in this story do not believe in the sense that Jesus wants to be believed in and that's what this chapter is about contrasting adequate belief with inadequate belief and that's the picture that we have here he said let us go and dear Thomas we should respect him there's nothing weak about Thomas. You know, he's called the twin. He says to his disciples, okay, let's go that we might die with him. You see, incurable stoic. Let's go beyond the barricade. Let's arise, people. <laughs> here's a man with a cause and here's heading off. I'm going to uh, die with him. Will you come with me? But this is a picture of inadequate faith. To become a Christian is not to align yourself with noble causes. It's not, faith is not activism. Obedience is not fanaticism. Faith is more than aligning with right causes. That is a reduction of the sort of faith that Jesus wants. 
many Christians, many people uh, who are almost Christians, like to be part of a church because it does good deeds, nice things, makes a difference, has a political edge. Now, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but that is not the faith that God is after. That is not the display which he's looking for. And so after this time, we now find Jesus heading south. And he came and he found Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. Bethany, it's an outskirts suburb of Jerusalem. And many of the Jews, and remember as we're reading this part of John, the Jews are actually probably the noble class, the ruling class, not just any old Jew here. Uh, Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus must have had some clout in this suburb and some of the Jews out of Jerusalem, religious people too, uh, the heavyweights were there to console them concerning their brother. And I love this next picture of Martha. You've met Martha in other Gospels. I have my own image of Martha, which is probably totally apocryphal, most likely sexist, (laughs) PC not (laughs) but uh, there I see uh, Martha and she has heard that Jesus has arrived and what is interesting is that in this culture what she should have been doing is what she does best hospitality but instead she's out there at the city limits and there's no would you like a cup of tea there's no fresh towels on arrival there's no piece of cake She's going to give him a piece of her mind. She has a bone to pick with this guy. And she confronts him and she thinks she has him on a fork of logic. She says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Ergo, if you'd only got on your bike sooner, you might have been able to do something useful. But instead. And even now... I know that God answers your prayer. And you see my problem? I'm just putting it out there, Jesus. But you see my problem? If God answers your prayer and Lazarus is dead, ergo, you didn't even pray for him. What sort of friend you, friends like you who needs enemies? She is spitting chips. And Jesus says... Now, just just hold up. He hasn't even got into the village yet, and he's met this little power bomb. And he says, Your brother will rise again. And she goes, Oh, thanks very much. Yes, I know. He's going to rise again at the last day. And she, she thinks Jesus is talking theology. Now, this is a lady that's got a, what you call an intertestamental faith. That is, she hasn't advanced much beyond the apocryphal ideas of the afterlife after the Old Testament was closed. and They had this general view that Israel would be raised again, that Israel would live on. But the idea that this person, Lazarus, might live on, well, that's a bit shady. They had a lot of foggy ideas about the afterlife. And so she says, oh, we're... She thinks Jesus is just saying one of those lovely evangelical cliches that you say at a funeral. And that he's just trying to do the pastoral thing and say the right stuff. 
and it doesn't really help. So she says, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day, but Jesus says to her, you see, and he's quite offended himself. He says, listen, I'm not talking about metaphysical principles here of some generic resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. You see what he's saying there? Two things in one. He's saying, this is one of Jesus' I am statements. It's an implicit claim to be Yahweh, the I am, the God of Israel. And it's not just the God of Israel, but I am the God of Israel that doesn't just resurrect Israel, the nation. I am the one who is responsible for the resurrection of any individual. If anyone rises from the dead, it's because of my direct intervention. That's what he's saying. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is such a critical statement. That is what this world does not know. That's what you know. That's what they need to know. That's what you need to tell them. That Jesus has the solution to the common enemy, the foe that we all think is invincible. And he directly deals with that personally. That if anyone believes in him, if anyone gets him right, if anyone understands who we're talking about here, and you trust in that person and that capacity, death will be no object. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He pins her to a commitment. And she says, yes, Lord, I've done the Sunday school lessons. I know, if you need me to say it, if it helps you. Yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, Son of God. You're the one who's coming into the world, blah, 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 blah. And she trots off her confession. But does it help her? You see, faith must be more than orthodoxy. I'm all for good theology. But faith is more than making the right noises. The sort of faith that Jesus is after here is faith in his whole identity as the one who is the antithesis of death. He is the author of life and is the author of of a second life. That's the sort of trust that he wants. Do you believe this? There cannot be an ideology called Christianity that denies that central fact. I've worked with bishops and theologians research supervisors and students who do not believe that fact and yet they're ordained. That is not adequate. That is not the picture of the church that Jesus had in mind. 
He is the resurrection and life. There is no way around his claim that skirts around this through whatever means that we can, intellectual gymnastics that we can muster. Jesus doesn't just believe in the resurrection of our faith. He wants to be attributed and responsible for the life to come of anyone who lives. It's not a metaphysical principle. It's not something that has happens because that's the way the cosmos is. There's no rule of karma that will say that you'll get a second chance and maybe you'll be a better sort of locust the next time around. Jesus doesn't go along with that. He himself, if it's anything adequate, he wants to be attributed with the resurrection. But faith must be more than orthodoxy. Must do more than just make the right noises. She makes the right noises, but then in the next breath, in verse 28, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher. He's just confessed he is the Lord of Israel. The teacher's here and he's calling for you. Actually, he didn't say that. And when she heard it, Mary arises. So Martha hasn't really internalised these incredible truths that just flowed off her mouth. Oh, she'd get a pass in a theology paper or on a Sunday school test, but it's not operating theology. She doesn't work out of that. It hasn't met her deeply and transformed her. When she heard it, she rose quickly and Mary rose quickly and went to him. Jesus is still outside the village. <laughs> He's still waiting for her, can you come in and put your feet up for a while and then we'll go and we'll pay our respects. And the Jews, like, uh, like electrons buzzing around this molecule, just they start swarming. As she gets up and moves, they assume, oh, it's time to go to the graveside. And uh, so they go with her. And so there's a large crowd listening now as Mary comes and she feel, feel, fell, falls at his feet and says to him, and you can just picture this woman in deep distress, red eyes, she's been crying, her hair is matted, it's all over her face, and in a shockingly degrading way, she just falls at Jesus' feet, a fractured woman. And there she is, and she said, Oh Lord, if only you'd been here, you might have been able to do something. The sisters have been gossiping. Same assumption. Same things have trotted out of her mouth as came out of her older sister's mouth. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, here, notice these words. Here we have the most intimate glimpse of the psychology of Jesus in the New Testament. If you want to know what your God is like and what makes him tick, you cannot rush over these few phrases. Jesus sees these, this, this whole display and it says that he is deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. It, it, there, there is no stronger phrase in the Greek language than this phrase in terms of emotional Richter scale. This is really saying Jesus was like two tectonic plates rubbing together with the sheer 
inexpressible emotion. And people saw him and saw that this human Jesus was struggling with this moment. And uh, he says, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And at that moment, the, the, the plates give way and he bursts into sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. And we trivialise this moment we think Jesus is grieving. He's obviously not grieving because as we've read a dozen times already, he was going to raise Lazarus. For him, Lazarus' condition was as threatening as sleep. That was no threat. That's not the reason. Why is Jesus so disturbed? I think it's John gets it across because then he says in verse 37, some of them said, couldn't not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Even the crowd have caught this virus. And they are wondering, you see the nature of their faith? They're just measuring Jesus in terms of the power of his miracles. And they believe faith is just believing in raw power. And if just last week Jesus gave sight, we, we saw not just a miracle, but the giving, the creation of the faculty of sight. That, that's phenomenal. They know that is really off the scale in terms of miraculous power. Could not Jesus, that same Jesus, have just cured this guy? But you see their assumption? And they all share it. Once death has come, it's the end. Death is too much for anyone. And they all assume contemptibly that the magic man has met his match. There is nothing that he could do here. No one could do anything. Not even God could hit this one. This is beyond the scale. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. You see what John is saying by that little, what's called a chiastic structure, the same event with a, a sandwich in the middle. He's saying, this is why Jesus was deeply troubled. Two reasons. On the one, to see the image of God degraded and defeated by the fear of death that it gets to him. That was never meant to be the experience of the image of God. His closest companions in the cosmos were never meant to experience death. You know, that's the most amazing thing. It's staring us in the face every time we have a funeral. Every time we farewell one of the departed. We are gutted. We have no comeback. You know, if we're just products of time and chance and random things like that, then, you know, God obviously did not put in a valve that we could twist or a switch that we could flick when we're faced with death. I mean, if I'm feeling hungry, I can ease that straight away with eating. If I am cold... I will shiver to keep my body temperature up. If I'm hot, I'll perspire automatically to cool it down. He's designed that in. 
but he never gave us the button to press for grief. We have never been given that capacity. And that's why we're destroyed. That's why we should not be stoic at a time of death. Because it just wasn't meant to be. Death is the intruder. Death is the enemy. Death is not part of life. That's romantic pap. That has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his objective for humanity. So Jesus looks at this scene here and in his little snow dome, he sees all of human history suffering the fear of death fronted by the enemy that they think is inconquerable and they think that this enemy is stronger than him. And that's the second tectonic plate here, is that Jesus is struggling with being misrepresented by the creature as being impotent in the face of the intruder. And he cannot hold it in any longer. And so they go to the tomb. And you can see Martha has not taken on board anything Jesus has said. Jesus says, take away the stone." pulls himself up and he takes command of the situation. He orders them to roll this stone away from the cavity that leads down into the tomb. And Martha, the pragmatism, totally out of place, totally on a different wavelength, says, Oh Lord, I love the authorised version, says, Oh Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) But... Uh, you know, and I think the crowd would have been going, oh, you know, it's a bit of a strange request, but <laughs> he probably just wants to pay his last respects, uh, entertain him, roll away the stone. And so they roll away the stone and Jesus is standing there. And he lifts his eyes and prays. But notice the prayer. There is no petition. In fact, he says, Father, I I don't actually need to pray this. You've already heard me. But I say these things in your presence and in their presence that they might know that you hear me and that these people standing around here might believe that you have sent me. This is authorised work. I'm accredited by heaven. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, cutting above thunder, Lazarus, come out. And at that point, I think everyone would have been looking at this guy and they, some of them saying, well, grief affects different people in different ways. And, you know, that's his thing, you know, Japanese go to mountaintops and they yell and this man's yelling at a grave, but whatever works. Lazarus come out and they're watching Jesus thinking, poor guy. You know, he needs to get this off his chest. Let's just give him some space. And then out of the corner of their eye, this spectre comes before them wrapped in cloth. I don't think anyone moved a muscle. No one said a thing. 
and they connected the two. The creative word of this Logos, the word of God, and this man who walks. So stunned they are, they don't know what to do. And he has to tell them, unbind him. <laughs> Let the guy go. Because <laughs> he's in command of the situation. But they're not. Folks, these things were written for us to take to heart. What we have here is not a call to join a cause. It's far more important than to get a creed right to profess. And by goodness, it's not to do with believing miracles can still happen. This is about understanding who Jesus is. This Jesus of John 9 is the creator and he is the recreator of John 11. This one who starts history in John 9 is the one we meet at the end of history. And he has given these people and us through the witness of his apostle a snapshot in the midpoint of history of what is our history. So that we, like him, would not give death respect it's the enemy, it's the intruder, and it's no match for him. Do you know, there's one big difference between you and the people in the queue at Safeway and Bunnings. If they don't know Christ and if they do not believe in him like this. And that difference is a noise that they will hear in their ear or not. The difference is a noise that in days to come, regardless of whether you died well, tragically, or in an inopportune time, in the midst of what would be like sleep, who knows? One day you will hear Kay, arise, awake. John, arise, awake. Martha, arise, awake. Bill, get up. <laughs> Bill. <laughs> We will hear our summons from our master. It's not some generic principle. It's a personal summons that he will deliver by hand. That has got to affect what you spend your life doing, right? We're going to find out more about that next week. But in this moment, I want to ask you that question that Jesus asked Martha. There's not a multitude of answers. Jesus asked her, do 
you believe this. That is the most important question you can answer. Maybe this morning, this is the first time as you've seen the emotionality of Jesus, emotions cannot lie, you see the uniqueness of Jesus, that he has to be the resurrection and the life. And he's put this little snapshot in front of us that we too might have absolute confidence that our destiny is a done deal. Finito. Not because of us, but because of who he is. Let's give him praise at this time. Our Lord, our God, we thank you, Father God, for the Apostle John and his ability to commit to memory this life-changing event that he has witnessed. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, for being with us this morning. We pray that you would cement in our consciousness this sort of faith, that our Jesus is sovereign over all of life, and all of death and all the powers to come. We thank you so much for that confidence that regardless of what happens beyond the grave, we are written on your mind. May we live this day in the light of that day for your glory, the glory of Jesus and the glory of God. Amen.